always lots of new people here, so if you and I haven't met before, my name is John, and I am one of the volunteers on the senior leadership team here at the church. Now, my wife and I, uh, we have two uh, young children. We have two little girls. One is five and one is seven. And uh, I know I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, I believe that our little girls are incredibly bright. I mean, they are, they are really smart. And one of the things that I recognize that I have to be really careful of as a parent is not to promise them something that I won't deliver on. Because they have these memories and they will recall, you know, two years ago when I was three years old, you said this and we didn't do it and you're a liar. I mean, they're just inquisitive about how the world works. They're always asking questions. And my five-year-old likes to ask questions that I could not possibly have the answer to. I mean, she wants to know what everybody is doing, where they are, who they are. So we'll be driving down the road, and she'll be like, Daddy, that car just pulled over to the side of the road. What are they doing? I'm like, I, I have no, those are random strangers. I have no idea what they're doing. She'll be like, what are those people doing? Where are they going? What are their names? What's going on there? And, and it's things that I, I, there's no way I can know. And what I want to say, what I want to say is how in the world would I know the answer to that? These are random strangers. How would I know that? Come on, how would I know? But that's not good parenting. Uh, and so instead, I take a deep breath, and it sounds something more like this. Uh, sweetheart, I don't, I don't know what those people are doing. I, uh, I, have no, I don't know those people. I, I don't know why they pulled over to this side of the road. But she often has answers that she's come up with on her own. So she'll say, well, probably their car broke down, and that's why they're pulling over. Or maybe they ran out of gas. You know, those people are probably going to the store over there. They probably need to buy something. And th that's probably Hank and Mary. I'm like, Hank and Mary? Like, where, where'd you come up with these names, you know? I, I mean, she is very inquisitive about how the world works. Now, my seven-year-old, she's at the place in life where she's trying to figure out how this whole God thing works and how faith, you know, works. And so she comes up with questions that like just absolutely astound me sometimes where I, I'm really caught off guard. And, and this is one of the reoccurring questions that she keeps asking. She'll say, so if God is God and Jesus is God, but Jesus is God's son, then is, is God two people or is Jesus the name of God? Who is, is Jesus not God? Is Jesus just a man and God had a son and, uh, with Mary? And you're just like, Oh, oh my goodness, like, really? You're seven. This is the questions you're asking? These are the questions you're asking. I mean, theologians have now been discussing these things for 2,000 years, right? But here my seven-year-old wants me to be able to have that answer for her right away. Uh, but that said, I think it's good for our, our kids to be able to ask questions, and especially when it comes to faith. I, I think it's beneficial for them to be able to ask questions. I mean, because when it really comes down to it at the end of the day, we all have questions about faith. Every one of us, we have questions about faith. And, and here at our church, we want this to be a safe place for people to be able to ask tough questions about faith. We, we want to create the kind of environment here where it's okay for people to have doubts and fears and ask questions. And, and, and today, I, I want us to, to take a look at a couple of pretty serious questions that I believe have huge bearing on our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, I recognize that not everyone here may be a follower of Jesus, and I want to say right off the bat that that is absolutely okay. 
We are glad that you're here today. In fact, this is a fantastic Sunday for you to be here because we're asking some tough questions. And I think that oftentimes it is those difficult questions that stand in the way of people making a decision in their faith journey to follow Jesus. Because there's these big questions that sort of stand in the way that that create like a blockage in their mind and prevent them from moving forward. And, And personally, I would just rather we address those kinds of things head on. And so today, the questions that I want us to to talk about have to do with the sovereignty of God and the will of God. Now, sovereignty is a a big word that we use to uh, communicate the concept that God is in control, that God is all-powerful, that God's plans and purposes reign supreme. That's what the idea of sovereignty is. But then that brings me to a very important question for us, and it's this. If God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do, then does it make any difference what we do? Does it make any difference if I'm on board with what God is doing? If he's going to do what he's going to do and he's in control anyway, then what difference does it make whether I serve, whether I seek God, whether I pray, whether I talk about Jesus with other people? What difference does it make if God's all supreme and powerful and in control and he has a plan, then does it make any difference what you and I do? You know, there are, there are those people who, uh, who will say, you know what, things are going to be the way they are. You can't control them. You can't change them. It is what it is. You know that song from the, the 1950s, K, Sarah, Sarah? You know what I'm talking about? That, that, that's going to get stuck in your head now. But then, of course, there's all these other people. You know, there's these self-help gurus that are out there, and they're saying, you know, you are the master uh, of your destiny. You're the one that's in control. You're the one that chooses the destiny that you have, and it's all up to you, not up to anybody else. And so, as Christians, the, the question is, well, what is it? How does, that, how does that work? How does that fit together? And, and although these are difficult questions, I think these are valid questions, and I think they're important questions for us to ask. A few years ago now, actually, it might, might even be closer to 10. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that happens to you. I'm now just at the place in my life where sometimes I'm like, oh, a couple years ago, and then I'm like, oh, wait, no, that was a decade ago. Okay. Uh, probably close to a decade ago, I was on a road trip uh, with a good friend of mine. And, and you know, one of the great things about road trips is, is that oftentimes you get past sort of the, the surface level type of conversation and, and you get to a place where you can have, you know, one of those deeper, more heartfelt conversations. You know what I'm talking about? I, I mean, road trips are fantastic unless you don't like the person you're stuck in the car with. Then, then road trips can be really horrible. But in this particular case, it was a good friend of mine, and we were on this road trip, and he actually uh, is a former pastor. And he began asking some questions, and I was just like, wow. And one of the questions that he asked was, you know, do you really think that the God who created the world actually reaches down into time and space to change things just because we've asked? You know, just because we've prayed. He said, you know, if God is in control, isn't he just going to do what he's going to do anyway, regardless of what we do? And I think it's important for us to recognize these kinds of questions and the kinds of questions that, that everyone has. Because here's a man who was, he was trained theologically, and he was a pastor. At one point, he was leading and serving and shepherding, you know, in the church. And yet here he was still asking these kinds of questions. And so today... 
I want us to take a look at these, and I want us to start by looking at a passage of Scripture that's found in the book of Psalms. So if you have a Bible or you have a smartphone with a Bible on it, I encourage you to turn there with me. We're going to look at Psalms chapter 8. Now, I, I want to say like, that we could preach an entire series on this topic. But for today, what we're going to look at is this one passage of Scripture that I believe contains some incredibly valuable information uh, that relates directly to these questions. And so I'm going to have us look there in Psalms chapter 8 together. Now, this was written by David, this particular psalm. Uh, the same David that killed Goliath, the same David that eventually became the king of Israel. And this is what he writes in Psalms chapter 8. We're going to put it up on the screen for you as well. Starting in verse 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Verse 3, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea and everything that swims, the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Now, first of all, I, I want to start by pointing out that in this very first verse, in verse 1, David begins this psalm by talking about the greatness of God. He said, oh Lord, your majestic name. He's talking about how incredible God is. You know, your glory is higher than the heavens. David begins this psalm by talking about the fact that God is supreme. God is great. God is magnificent. He begins really by elevating the name of God, by giving God glory and honor and praise. And then when we jump to verse 3, David starts talking about the, the, the fact that he's, he stands in awe when he is looking up at the night sky and he sees the, 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 the stars and he sees the, the, the moon. And he, he calls it something interesting. He says it's the, the work of God's fingers, which is kind of, kind of a, a, an inter interesting word picture. It's the work of God's fingers, that God's the one that set in place the moon and the stars. And I don't know if you can relate, but I know for myself there's been so many times where I, I have been outside and looked around and just really stood in awe of how incredible the earth is. This world that God created for us, just how magnificent it is. Even from the starting place of, you know, if the earth was just a little bit closer to the sun, we would burn up. And if it was a little bit farther away, we would all freeze. And yet it sits in the perfect position at the, the perfect axis and rotation to sustain life. And even if you don't believe in a designer, it, it's very difficult to not stand in awe of how beautiful the created world is. I mean, even if you're just sitting on your back deck or you're out for a walk along the side of a river or camping in the mountains or wherever you find yourself, there are these opportunities to look around and stand in amazement at the world around us. You know, there's been times where, you know, I was like watching one of those nature shows on television and then they started talking about some animal that I'd never heard of before. And I was like, really? There's, there's all these animals that we don't know even exist yet that they're still discovering? 
I was at the zoo just this last spring with my kids, and I remember there was this one pen that we came to, and as I walked up to it, I looked inside, and I thought, what on earth is that thing? I've never seen one of these before. I'm like, what is it? And my kids are like, what's that? I'm like, I don't know. So I go over to the, you know, the placard that's supposed to explain what it is, and I couldn't pronounce the name of the animal. I'm standing there looking at it, and I'm like, nah, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't even tell somebody that I saw this thing. Like, hey, did you know that the zoo has one of these? Because I can't pronounce the name of it. I don't know what it is. I look at it, I don't know what. If I took a picture of it and showed you, you would be like, yeah, no clue. No idea what that is. The world around us is incredible, and the diversity of animals and insects is amazing. Now, if I was God, I, I would have left out the insects. Like, I, insects are not cool. There's no insects that I think are necessary. I'm not sure why God did that. That's one of those questions I'm going to have to ask when I get to heaven. Why did you create insects? And also, God, why did you create house cats? <laughs> Absolutely no need for cats. I'm not sure why God created cats. Cats are horrible. I'm allergic to cats. And now about half of you right now have stopped listening. You're like, I hate him. I don't care what he says. Cats are the most amazing thing. Now you're going to get out your phone and you're going to spend the rest of the service looking at cat videos and pictures of your cats just in straight rebellion of what I've just said. But I stand by my statement and I have the microphone, so. There have been times where I stood outside at night and looked up at the stars and the moon and I stood in awe of just the infiniteness of space. And I remember as a kid coming to the realization that the universe we live in isn't contained inside of anything. Like there's no end to it. Because what, what would it be contained in? And then what would be on the outside of that? I mean, just the vastness of it is incredible. And here in these verses, as David talks about this, he goes on to say, uh, what is it, God? How incredible it is, sorry, God, that, that you think about us, that you're mindful of us. If you go to that next verse, uh, in chapter 8, verse 4, he says, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. And here David, he's really standing in awe, in a humble place, saying, God, in contrast to the infiniteness of the universe... I can't believe that you pay attention to us. God, who are we? we, are, we are, our lives are so short and we're so finite and yet, God, you think about us. You, you look after us. See, contained within in David's question here is really a statement about the way that God views us, that he invites us and wants relationship with us. And, and this concept that God thinks about us and, and that he cares for us, he looks after us, is really remarkable. And I think sometimes I need to be reminded to, to take on that, that attitude of humility that David has here. He's looking at the incredible infiniteness of space, and then he says, who are we? And yet oftentimes I, I sort of walk around, you know, as if the whole story revolves around me. Now, I know that doesn't happen to any of you because you're so spiritual and selfless. Uh, but sometimes that happens to me where I, I get caught up in it and I think, well, this, my life is about me and this story revolves around me. And, and here David has this incredible attitude of humility as he looks at how incredible it is that God invites us into relationship with him. 
But then he goes on in verse 5, and I want you to pay careful attention to this. He says, yet you made them, referring to humans, only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. And what a picture that this is. In fact, David here is referring right back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says that God made us male and female in his image. God created us in his image. And that's why I believe all human life has value, because we bear the image of the almighty God. And then he says that God gave us the responsibility of caring for the earth that he created. God gave us the authority to have dominion over the earth and look after it, the earth that he created for us, for better or for worse. (laughs) I mean, especially in the last couple hundred years, we have done a lot of things that we probably shouldn't have to the earth. And we've polluted the air. We've chopped down rainforests. I mean, we've just about put some species out of uh, extinction completely, if not close to it. But yet God still chooses to invite us into this partnership where where he's, he's said, this is yours to look after. This is your responsibility. And that's because God chooses to accomplish his will through people. God chooses in his sovereignty, even though he is all-powerful and all-knowing, to use people to accomplish his will. And in fact, if you forget everything else that I say today, if if you walk away from this morning or this afternoon and you only hold on to one thing, I hope this is the one thing that sits in your spirit, that God uses people to accomplish his will. And even throughout... Even throughout biblical history, we see this. We see God using Noah and Abraham and Moses and people like Deborah and Esther and Mary. God uses people to accomplish his will. Even though, as people, we are not always the best partners for God. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where... You were assigned a partner, maybe for a science project in high school or something in college, or maybe even in your, you know, your boss at work assigned you to be partners with somebody to work on a project. And then as the project went along, you realized that your partner was like a complete hump and wasn't doing anything at all, and you were stuck doing the entire project on your own. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, by the end of the project, you're just angry at this other person because they didn't do any of the work, but yet they are going to get the same mark as you or the same, the same accolades from the boss as you because you're in a partnership, but you did all the work. Or, or maybe you were the other side of the partnership. <laughs> maybe you were the one that wasn't quite as on the ball as your partner and you were real happy because you got paired up with the real smart kid in your class, and you were like, cha-ching, we are going to do amazing. And at the end of the project, the person hates you because your contribution to what you were doing was so minimal in comparison to theirs. In a lot of ways, that's kind of like our partnership with God. I mean, we are often terrible partners you got to wonder why it is that God chooses to be in partnership with us. 
And yet, that's how he accomplishes his will. God uses us and he invites us into this partnership with him. And oftentimes, we think to ourselves that we have got to get everything together. We've got to get all our ducks lined up in a row. We've got to deal with all of our baggage and everything else before God can use us. And yet, God invites us into partnership with him even when we're still a mess. Now, don't get me wrong. I think if you've got stuff that you need to deal with, you've got baggage, you've got history, you've got sin in your life, it's important for you to deal with that. But God isn't looking for perfect people. God's looking for people who are willing. He's not looking for perfect people, for, to, for people who have all everything together. He's looking for people who are willing. And even when, when you look at the, the pages of the Bible, it's fascinating to recognize that a lot of the faults of these people that God chose to use are written plainly on the page for us. And if I was writing the Bible, I probably would have excluded some things. Some of the stories where you see like somebody that God has used mightily and then they just, they just, they blow it completely. I probably would have just been like, let's just end this story early and, go, and move on to the next one. You know, I mean, take for instance David who wrote this psalm. Now, I realize that every pastor picks on David. Poor David has been picked on now for like 5,000 years. Poor guy. But when we look at the life of David, here David has, used, David has been used by God mightily. You know, he's de defeated their enemies, and now he's become king of Israel. And then he sleeps with another man's wife. And he gets her pregnant. And then he devises this scheme so that her husband will think that he's the one that got her pregnant, and the baby is his. And it doesn't work out. And when it doesn't work out, David has this guy killed. He murders him. I mean, this is some like hardcore gangster style stuff here. I mean, can you imagine? This is the king of Israel, the mighty King David. And he's, he's like a mafia don, this guy. I got this girl pregnant. Her husband's kind of in the way. I'm just going to get rid of him. I mean, can you imagine that's your king? Imagine that's your prime minister. He pulls something like that. Right? I mean, this is, this is crazy stuff. But it's written plainly in the Bible for us to see. Or take Noah. Noah is used by God literally to ensure that the human race continues. And yet, Noah gets real drunk one day, takes off all his clothes, as intoxicated people often do for some reason, and then he passes out completely naked. I would have left that story out. I've just been like, nah, I don't know if there's any benefit to people hearing about Noah's drunk escapade. Let's just, let's just, you know, gloss over that a little bit. Or what about Paul? Paul is arguably the greatest missionary that ever walked the earth. The huge chunks of the New Testament that we have in our Bible was written by Paul. And yet before Paul became a follower of Jesus, Paul was killing Christians. Not just killing them. He was actively hunting them down in order to kill them. And yet, God still chooses to use them. I want to encourage you today that God is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who are willing. And listen carefully, listen carefully. God doesn't need your intellect or your brilliance or your great ideas, 
or even your talent as much as he needs your willingness. Your willingness and your humility to say, God, I'm willing to be used by you. I'm willing to have you come and mold me and shape me into the person you've called me to be so that I can be used in greater ways by you. God, not my will, but yours. God, not my plan, but yours. God is looking for willing people. And yet, when you pray that prayer, God, use me, that is literally one of the most dangerous prayers that you can pray. Because you never know exactly how it is that God is going to use you. And and oftentimes, we imagine it in those mountaintop experiences. We think, if I open myself up to God and I say, God, use me, next thing you know, I'm going to be preaching to stadiums full of people. Or or I'm going to be a gospel singer that travels all around the world. And yet, most of the time, the way that God uses us is in the trenches of our day-to-day ordinary life. In the midst of the grind of the things that you and I do on a day-to-day basis that don't seem glamorous, that don't seem exciting and that we don't get any credit for. God's looking for people who will say, God, use me when it's Monday morning, when it's cold out, when you're on your way to work, you're not happy about being there. God, use me. When you're in the lunchroom at work, God, use me. At home, in your own family, in the relationships that you have with your parents and your siblings and your spouse and your kids, God, use me. It's about willing to be a blessing to those people that you come into contact with on an everyday, daily basis. And taking the focus off of ourselves and saying, God, use me to be a blessing to these people. Whoever it is that you come into contact with. It it may be the, the elderly lady that can no longer mow her lawn on your block. It may be that you deliver food hampers for the church, or it could be that you're, you're one of the people greeting people as they come in on a Sunday morning. There are all kinds of ways that God will use us, and certainly as we are faithful, that opens the door for more and more opportunities for us to be used by God, but it's often not in those mountaintop kind of experiences. It's in the day-to-day grind. I have a good friend who seven years ago felt like he and his wife were to plant a new church here in Calgary. And they started their church on the far west end of the city. And as they built their church and as it began to grow, a pattern started to emerge. And one of the things that they realized is that oftentimes a lot of the people that God was bringing into their new church is couples who were literally right on the brink of divorce. I mean, people who were ready for one of them to walk right out the door. And God would bring these people in in this place of brokenness and they would spend time counseling with them, praying with them, meeting with them one-on-one, meeting with them together as a couple. Lots of late nights, lots of phone calls, lots of interaction. And they began to see God work in really miraculous ways. Where there was strife in homes, they began to see peace. Where there was once bitterness and unforgiveness, they began to see love. And peace and joy and forgiveness take take that place. And as they began to see God restore these relationships, then God would bring them another couple, often worse off than the folks they had before, and they would start the process all over again. And God used them not just a couple of times, but literally over and over and over again. Every time I talked to him, there was literally a new couple that they were working with. But then another pattern began to emerge. 
And that is that after they had worked with these people and invested all this time into these folks and really seen just miraculous things take place, after these people were in a place of restoration, often they came back to my friend and his wife and they would say, you know, we love you. We're so grateful for everything you've done. But now we're moving far away. Or now we've decided we're going to go to this other church. Or now we've decided we're going to do this. And they would leave. And, and so, you know, my friend and his wife, this was incredibly discouraging for them. Because in their mind, when they said, God, use me, what they anticipated was that they were going to see this ministry grow and grow and grow. And they were going to get to the place where they needed to hire more staff. And eventually it was going to be one of those things that they would turn over the ministry to another pastor. And they would see that legacy that they'd established carry on. And they'd have something to show for all this time that they were investing in the lives of these people. And yet they're not receiving any kind of public recognition. There's no accolades. There's no book deals. There's certainly no money or very little money. But they're being faithful to what God has called them to do. They prayed that dangerous prayer, God use me. And even though it, it, it doesn't look like what they thought it was going to look like, God has used them in powerful ways. Because not only have these marriages that they've worked with been restored, but think of the impact that that now has on those children and even their children's children. I think as a society, one of the things that we undervalue is the benefit of healthy marriages and healthy homes and healthy children growing up in these environments. And so I believe that there will come a point, probably on the other side of heaven, where they get the recognition for what they have done. But right now, it's hard sometimes. And you may find yourself in that same situation when you pray that dangerous prayer. God, use me. And that brings me to the big question that I want to ask all of us here today as we come to the end of this service. Are you willing to be used by God? Are you willing to pray that dangerous prayer, God, use me? Because in God's sovereignty, he chooses to use people to accomplish his will. And what that means is it matters whether I'm on board with God's will. It matters whether I pray. It matters whether I serve. The, the things that I choose to do matter to God because he chooses to accomplish his will through you and I. He uses people, for better or for worse, he uses people to accomplish his will. He chooses even to limit at times what he does in order to allow us to partner with him to accomplish his will. And I'm so thankful that we don't have to do that on our own. It's not just exclusively about us and God. It's about us walking in community with other people, with the church, as we accomplish what God has called us to do together. Will you pray that dangerous prayer today? God, use me. Not knowing exactly sometimes how that will happen, Will you open yourself today to the Spirit of God as He is here prompting us and say, God, I'm willing to be used by you. God, I'm willing to be a blessing to those people that I come across in my everyday, ordinary life. I'm willing to partner with you, God. I, I accept your invitation. God, use me.